I trust that your heart uh, has been moved. Uh, sweet, sweet testimonies this morning uh, from these sisters and uh, to be able to sing together. Um, it, yeah, uh, my heart is full even now. So uh, let's pray. Thank the Lord. God, you are kind. Uh, you're so kind. I thank you that there are stories of your saving grace. And as we think about how then do we live in light of that grace, I pray that you would remind us that when we give ourselves to your word, following your commands, as regular and ordinary as though they may seem, God, we showcase your glory. And so would you help us be a church that joyfully does that? And so as we end our series this morning, I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, work. Work truth out in our hearts so that it would inform then how we live. And so would you take the little that I have and do much with it, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of the more staggering realities of the Christian life is that God has chosen to make known his manifold wisdom. And he's chosen to make known his manifold wisdom to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And he's done that through the church. I mean, this is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3. It's what Kevin just prayed based on Ephesians chapter 3, particularly in verse 10. The multifaceted, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And so just consider that with me for a moment as the church progresses in her maturity in Christ. The church then is showcasing, is displaying God's multifaceted goodness to the world. And Ephesians 3 reminds us that it's attracting the gaze of the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. For that to be true, then she should be no less of an object of intense regard to humanity here on earth. And so if you are a Christian this morning, I want to just remind you how vast are your privileges in being a part of his church on this earth. If you're a Christian this morning, I want to remind you how solemn are your responsibilities in being a part of displaying the multifaceted, manifold wisdom of God in and through how you live in community with the church. And these, these privileges and these responsibilities, they're not unknown to us. We're not sort of left to our own devices. Uh, these privileges and responsibilities aren't changing with the times. No, these privileges and responsibilities consist of what it means to be the church faithfully. And so as you think about how you can showcase the glories of Christ and being a part of his people, I just want to put the word before you, it's faithfulness. 
Church, we have the opportunity in giving ourselves to faithfulness to entrust God with the fruitfulness. And as we are faithful, we do showcase His renown. Much like the prongs to a diamond, so too the church to Christ, seeking to, to, to magnify, not distract from the worth and the beauty of the diamond. And so friends, just awakening to this purpose in your life will allow you to become acquainted with what one Puritan said is the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And so really, if you and I would, would awaken to the realities that just giving ourselves to faithfulness, we can know something about Christian contentment. I believe our souls would be served well. I believe our witness would be served well. And I believe our God would be served well. You can leverage your life to showcase, to <laughs> showcase I was going to say showcase and worth, and it showcased. You can leverage your life to showcase the worth of Christ. And you can do that as you faithfully engage with the church. And remember, Matthew 16, not even the gates of Hades will prevail against his church. And so this morning we wrap up this series that we've called Display, how the local church showcases the glories of Christ. There are more things that we could have highlighted, but we highlighted these four things. That to be the church is to assemble as the called out ones. From cover to cover, we've seen God's word make clear that God's people always have been and always will be, even into heaven, a gathered people. And so this means that if you and I are going to showcase his glory, there's something about showcasing his glory together that we can't do alone. So we gather regularly. To be the church is to rightly administer baptism, one of the ordinances that Christ has given to the church. And so a clear way of displaying the worth and the glory of Jesus is by identifying with him and his church through the public act of baptism. And baptism, when it's rightly administered, portrays the gospel. It signifies one's union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Baptism marks out those who belong to Christ and those who are of the world. We talked about rightly administered baptism means we give thought about who should be baptized, who has the authority to baptize, when should baptism happen, and how should baptism happen. But the church also highlights the worth of Christ in rightly administering the Lord's Supper, meaning it takes place when the church comes together. It's partaken by those who have already identified with Christ in and through baptism those whose profession has been affirmed by a local church, those who are walking in ongoing repentance of sin, and those who are living in relationships that are reconciled one to another. And so we wrap up our series considering how a church covenanted together showcases the glories of Christ. And I could say it another way, a church who has meaningful membership showcases the glories of Christ as members commit 
before the Lord and to the Lord and to one another to walk out God's commands of what it looks like to live together as the church. And I realize in saying that, some will contest. Wait a minute. You cannot point to me in the Bible the verse that says, Thou shalt join a local church as a member. And if that is your contention, I would say you are correct. I cannot show you the verse that says, You shall join a local church as a church member. But I believe it is helpful to know that the Bible doesn't provide us with sort of chapter, verse, proof text for everything we ought to do or everything that we ought to believe. We will look to no avail to find a reference to even the word Trinity. Though we see triune and Trinitarian concepts all throughout. Uh, same thing about the word missionary. Those are biblical concepts, but we don't find that concise terminology in the Bible. And so I'm helped by what one, one pastor noted. He said the reality is that if we were to unpack what the Bible teaches about the local church, we will find church membership in every nook and cranny of the New Testament. And we've said this in the past, but we believe that membership in a local church is explicitly implied in the Bible. It's explicitly implicit. John Piper says, the Bible does not say explicitly, thou shall have a written church covenant, any more than it says, thou shall have marriage license, or thou shall have wedding rings. And so this is what I want to say. While there's not a chapter and verse that we can run to and preach this sermon out of that says, you should join a local church as a vested church member, the word member is throughout the New Testament. And the context is that Christians have unique relationships with other Christians, particularly in the context of a local church. And that's what we can't deny. And so the heart even behind wrapping up this series in this way is to show us and to remind us of the unique relationship that Christians have with other Christians who are together with them in the local church. For example, Ephesians 2.19, the word member is used there, and it's used there to speak of being a member of a household. He's writing to the church, talking about the household of faith, and it's, it's uh, meant to carry the connotation of this familial activity. And so just to remind you, brother and sister, that type of language that we use, that's not mere cultural jargon. Those words mean something because we are members of the same family. They are theological truths about who we are because of who God has made us in Christ. We are part of his family. We are members of one another. Our relationship with Christ places us in a covenant relationship with other Christians. Ephesians 3.6, the word member there is used. It's translated as sharer or participant, capturing this, mutual, this idea of mutual giving and receiving of care in life together. And then lastly, what we just heard read, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we flip over to Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. They all use this word member to mean a part of the body, the physical body, to capture the union that we have with Christ and with one another. 
And so when we talk about membership in the local church, I'm not talking about Costco-type membership. I'm not talking about country club and gymnasiums. I'm talking about this membership that the Bible presents, that we belong meaningfully one to another. And that that's a commitment, it's a promise that we make together. And so just for the sake of clarity, I know that not all churches that are faithful to the gospel practice sort of formal membership. And they don't have formal membership processes. And what I want to say is, I'm less concerned about what churches call this type of vested primacy of relationship that Christians have with one another in the local church. I, I believe and we believe that the best way to capture the accountability and even the polity, how we govern ourselves as a church and uh, to structure the authority and the submission that all happens within the church. And we think formal membership is, is uh, the best way of doing it. We believe it's the most prudent way of capturing all of that. Um, but whether someone, uh, whether a local church has a official, formal, structured membership process, um, what I don't want to do is throw those churches under the bus so as to say every church should have some semblance, whether we call it membership or not, some semblance of accountability, member to member, member to leader, leader to member, accountability to the discipline of the church, the doctrine of the church. And so how do we see this in God's word? Well, I think there are two ways that we see this in God's word, and that's what we'll look at this morning. Uh, the first way is the image of church membership. The image of church membership. In the passage that we just heard Charlie read, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul calls the church the body of Christ. And Christians are the members of the body. That's what he says in verse 27. You are Christ's body, and individually you are members of it. Each of the members, this is what he's been working to convey throughout this chapter, each of the members are dependent upon one another. And if each of the members are dependent upon one another, this really is a safeguard. And it's a safeguard for us today. Because oftentimes when we find that we're in relationships with, with other people, especially a relationship where we're committing to certain things, they're committing to certain things, this idea of belonging to one another and being dependent upon one another, it protects us from self-pity. It protects us from thinking, oh, nobody cares about me, I'm forgotten, I'm left alone. No, we're... We belong to, together. We need one another. Not only does it protect us from self-pity, but it also protects us from, from pride, from thinking that we don't need others. In the passage that you heard read, you, you heard, well, the eye can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. No, being a part of a body, all of the members need one another. The God-given design is that there would be a variety of giftings to build up the church. And so again, while 1 Corinthians 12 doesn't talk about formal church membership, it does talk about the relationship that Christians, he's writing to a local church, we would even make the, the, the bounds around that category, not just Christians generally, but Christians specifically in local context. 
They do belong to one another. They should gather with. They should love. They should serve. They should submit to one another. We believe in the reality of the universal church. That there is a church that will, be, that will consist of believers from all times, in all places, among all peoples. And yet, out of the 114 uses of the word church in the New Testament, 90 of them don't refer to that universal reality, but the local expressions of the universal reality. And so we could say it another way, 1 Corinthians 12 just sort of reminds us that there's something unnatural about a Christian detaching himself from a body of believers. The Bible really doesn't have a category for Christians who exist and function apart from the whole. And so when we talk about church membership, this is what we're talking about, this defined relationship that local Christians who gather together, that they understand they have a vested interest and a vested responsibility to one another. We're living in community, covenant community. We're not asking, join a club. We're not asking, merely affiliate with an organization or an institution. We're asking you to join yourself to other Christians we're asking you to join yourself to other Christians for the purposes of pursuing godliness together, to live in relationships of mutual accountability and encouragement. We're asking you to identify yourself as a vital, contributing member in the household of faith. Some people hear membership and they think, yeah, this is about control. You want to have control over me. No, this isn't, this isn't about people having control over you. This is about you being accountable to others. This is about being committed to others. And so 1 Corinthians 12 provides us with this image of the body, the body of Christ. We're not going to unpack these this morning, but other images that explore this idea is the image of a family. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Family is this network of relationships and obligation. Family members are bound to one another. They share meals together. They celebrate together. They mourn together. They rejoice together. They make decisions together. And when they're apart, they long to reunite together. And the Bible gives us this image because members in a local church are to unite with one another as brothers and sisters. Our commitment to one another shows that we do family things together. We gather together. We care. We laugh. We weep. We worship. We serve. One author said, Regularly attending a local church but not joining is like frequently visiting your neighbor's house. You may enjoy the occasional fellowship, but at the end of the day, you're not a part of the family. And the other image is that of a temple or a spiritual house. We see Paul talk about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We see, him, uh, we see Peter bring this up in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This idea of 
coming together, being built up as a spiritual house made up of living stones, like bricks that are mortared together. The local church is comprised of individuals that are built into this spiritual house. And so you have various images in the New Testament. The image of the body, the image of the family, the image of the spiritual house, the temple. And so just consider for a moment each of those images and really what's behind those images. Those images are meant to create not merely a category in our minds, but a disposition in our hearts. The images are given so that not merely it would just mandate that we join a church. No, it would shape our character. And it would shape our values. Those images, they don't merely tell us what to do. Those images tell us who we are. And flowing from who we are, then we get to doing what we do. And this is what I know. I know that not all of you who are Christians this morning that are here, that you're not members of a local church. And I understand that there are a host of reasons that would keep you for joining. I was helped even to today, Elizabeth, to hear you say, yeah, I've got a little bit of apprehension because of past and previous hurts. And yet I'm trusting God in his good design. I just invite you. God is trustworthy. For you to take him at his word and not allow your experience to keep you from the blessing that he's intending to flow through you, uh, to you, in and through the local church. And I would, I would just ask you, consider and work through the reasons that you have for not being a part of a local church. Are they biblical? Are they mostly experiential? And perhaps you're saying, well, I'm waiting until I heal before I then take the step. And can I just remind you that healing may not come until you take the first step? And if you're waiting for the perfect church, I just want to tell you that's overrated. <laughs> I mean, it's severely overrated. And it's grossly unrealistic. Let's just say you found that church. Do you think you could join it? <laughs> it's perfect. No. Committing to an imperfect people and blooming where the Lord has planted you, that's sadly underrated. And yet that seems to be what God's word calls us to. I mean, in these, in, I, I just think about 1 Corinthians and Paul's writing about the need for members to belong together in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you just read 1 Corinthians, you do not walk away thinking this is the church that had it all together. No, they were so much in need of grace. And what better place to plant yourself than with others who know they're in need of grace? Because that's what we're all in need of. And so if you're a Christian and you're not a member, you're not meaningfully vested. There's not the accountability and the authority in your life, over your life. I would just ask why. And if any of our members, if any of our pastors could talk to you, 
less about, hey, this is a sales pitch to join this church, even if it's not this church. We believe that Christians belong to local churches. And if we can help you find that, we would gladly do it, even if it's not here. Well, but I also know that there may be some of you who are not Christians. And if that's you this morning, I would just encourage you, before considering the church, I would encourage you to consider Christ. Don't allow the church to keep you and the struggles that reside oftentimes within the church to keep you from the beauties and the perfection that resides in Christ. Thinking about this image of family, to be a part of God's family is to understand that there is a home that we were created for, a home and a place where we would belong and that we would know rest and peace. Where physical life and health are sustained And yet we know that those homes don't exist. In fact, what we find is this world and many of the homes even in this world are broken. And even if you had a good home life, the world around you is broken. And even if you've had a good environment, what you know more than anyone else is that the heart within is broken. That there's something that you can't kick and you can't fix that keeps you from experiencing family the way that we were created to experience it. Death and disease have marred and ruined God's good creation, and all of that happened because of a rebellious turning from God moment. Back in Genesis chapter 3, as the representatives for all of us turned their back on God's good design, did what, he told, what they were told not to do, and in doing that, they ushered in sin and death. And you and I, every one of us, then have been infected by this same propensity. Turn from God, insist on our own ways. Turn from God, insist on our own ways. And that sounds like freedom, and that sounds like there's some good things that we can get if we do that, but the reality is that that has kept us from being able to come back home. Home being with the God who created us, to whom we are accountable for. Home, the thing that you and I long for. And our sin keeps us from that. Well, how in the world, how in the world can a people who deserve not just to not be with the Lord, but deserve His punishment because of their sin against the Lord, how do they ever find their way back home? It can only come through one. It can't come through good works. It can't come through enough church attendance. No, it only comes because Jesus the Christ, God the Son, left his own home. He left his home. He was born away from his home. He wandered throughout his life without a place to lay his head. And he's finally, at the end of his life, he's crucified. Hebrews 13 tells us, outside of the gate, a sign of exile and rejection. And yet he was without sin. Why leave your home, not have a home, be set outside of the gate, dying in this most criminal of ways? He would do that because he, in great mercy and grace, took our place. 
He experienced the exile, the alienated state that the human race deserves. He's cast out so that those who would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in him might be brought home. And so this morning, if you're here and you just are thinking, I'm not right with God, there's no way I can ever be made right with God, I want you to know that you can be made right with God. There's no way that you can do it, but there is a way that has been done. And that's the work of Jesus the Christ. Sinless, perfect life, the life that we ought to live, are required to live. Substitutionary death on a cross, absorbing the wrath of God, what each of us deserve. And then on the third day, being resurrected, showing that when he he rises from the grave, he breaks the power of death. And so now he holds the keys to sin and death in his hand. And so our greatest enemy is no longer our greatest enemy. If you're not a Christian this morning, before considering the church, I would call you to consider Christ. Where else will you turn in order to find forgiveness? The kind of forgiveness that will bring you back home. If you have any questions about that, talk to anyone here. It would be the joy of any member of this church to speak with you about these things. So not only do we see the images of church membership, but secondly, we see the covenant of church membership. The covenant of church membership. The Bible is full of teachings about covenants. There's covenants between God and man. There are covenants between uh, man, uh, man and man. And as we think about church membership, it's good to rem- for us to remember that Covenant Life Church exists. We exist because of God's new covenant. Those covenant commitments that he made to us in Jeremiah chapter 31, I would encourage you again, I've, I think I've, in almost every one of these sermons, I've encouraged you to go back to Jeremiah chapter 31. But just listen to verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so as we think about the covenant of belonging together, the place to begin is not the covenant that we enact horizontally. The place to begin is to say we are a covenant people because of the covenant that God has entered into with us. And Jeremiah 31 spells those promises out. God has made a covenant to forgive sins, to write his law on hearts, to make us his people and to be our God. That's the new covenant that we proclaim Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, and it's owing only to His grace. This wasn't a negotiation of sorts where we come to God and say, all right, God, I think we're going to do this. No, this was a nego- this was, there was no negotiation. This was all initiated and instigated by the conditions that He had already decided on and that He had already met. And so Covenant Life Church exists because of this covenant that we have been brought into with God. But we all, uh, Covenant Life Church also exists because our own church covenant commitments to trust Christ, to worship God, and to love each other in the ways that are commended in the New Testament. 
I mean, this is what's really at the center of formal membership is this idea of we are covenanting together. I'm looking for an image. There it is. And so reawakening to what it means to be a covenant people, that will go a long way to fulfill the longings that many of us had, have to be doing what it is that God has called us to do. And so as we think of covenants, it's helpful to think first of the vertical. But then that vertical covenant that we've entered into has horizontal implications into the covenant that we enter into with one another. And I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this. This is why, this is one of the reasons that we named this church, Covenant Life Church is because all throughout the Bible, God has, God has related to his people on the basis of covenants. And so even as we said our name, we wanted to be reminded both of, man, we are a people only because of the covenant that God has made with his body and blood. That's, that's the only reason that we're a people, because of that covenant. What's the response to that covenant? It's all of our life. It's every bit of who I am. But not just the vertical covenant. There's also this reality that it completely transforms our relationships with others. We no longer live for ourselves, but we're marked by humility and love and service, whereby we're encouraging one another and challenging one another. And so the covenant that we're both that we're in, both with God and others, it's not merely a covenant of intentions. It's not a covenant of ideas or ideals or words. It's a covenant that we honor with all of our lives. And so even the name of this church, Covenant Life Church, we wanted for our congregation to remember the covenant of grace that God has established and this covenant of commitment that we make to one another. And how do we do it? With all of our life. That's why we're Covenant Life Church. A church covenant is a promise that's made to God and made to other groups of Christians. It's a commitment to God and to one another, spelling out how we will live out our faith in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to be clear, nothing in Scripture says you have to have a church covenant. But church history is filled with churches who have used them and benefited from them and have leaned on them and have profited by them. Well, some people say, but, but the Bible is the final authority. Why in the world are we using a church covenant? Well, to be clear, we are not using a church covenant in order to be the final authority on anything. No, our church covenant clarifies the understanding of, of this, uh, under, clarifies the church's understanding of biblical teaching. Here's the thing. We could go right now to all of the churches within a one to two mile radius of this building and walk in and say, do you believe the Bible? Yes, I do. And yet, various doctrines and truths are interpreted differently. And so a church covenant clarifies how we live out what it is that we believe. A church covenant isn't merely like one passage of Scripture, but they're usually direct quotes or summarized truths from many of the Scriptures. As one pastor says, the form of the covenant is how we express our commitment, but the content of the covenant is how we understand our commitment. So the form of the covenant is how we 
express our commitment. And the content of the covenant is how we understand our, covenant, our commitment. And so many churches have a statement of faith that would articulate their theological convictions. A church membership covenant functions then to articulate how those beliefs are to be lived out within a local church. And so if I could end this way, thinking just about three reasons why church covenants are useful within the church. The first one is this. A church covenant identifies, it makes clear the particular committed relationships within the church. A church covenant identifies and makes clear the particular committed relationships within the church. And so if you just think with me for a moment what the word of the Lord says in multiple places. First, think, what's the relationship that Christians are to have with their leaders, with their pastors? Well, Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Think about what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and who have charge over you in the Lord and who give you instruction, that you would esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live peaceably with one another. And so the question then, if we're thinking about the relationship that Christians have to, to pastors, to leaders... Who are Christians to submit to based on Hebrews 13, 17? Are Christians supposed to submit to every person who calls themselves a pastor? Well, of course not, Justin, because we can't submit to people that are in Dubai. Okay, so are Christians supposed to submit to every person that calls themselves a pastor in the city they live in or in the neighborhood that they live in? How do we know what... The jurisdiction is between who Christians submit to. Is it just people who show up? And so if you show up to a gathering, then that's who you submit to. Any pastor, well, 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that there will be unbelievers who show up. So it doesn't seem to be just people who show up. It's this idea that leading and submitting cannot happen apart from some agreed or defined way of being committed to one another. And so it's, it, it's explicitly implied. Who must submit to pastors and who are those pastors? I think there's an explicitly implied formal, formal relationship. These Christians know who it is they're submitting to. In fact, they are putting themselves under that authority. But that's not the only relationship. It's not just Christians to pastors. It's also pastors to Christians. And we're told multiple places, 1 Peter chapter 5, Acts chapter 20. As we think about who is it that pastors are responsible for? Who is it that pastors ought to be serving and loving and caring for? Well, certainly they should love and care for anyone. But there's a unique responsibility to care for a certain group. Acts 20, 28 doesn't say elders can just invest into those that uh, 
that aren't yet members, it makes clear that their first responsibility is the flock that is among them. And so there's some defined relationship, even so that elders would know, this is who I am to give an account to and for. But not just relationship between Christians and pastors, and not just relationship between pastors and pastors, but also the relationship between Christians and Christians. Matthew 18 if you do not have some formal way of knowing who's within the church and who's without the church, then how in the world do you, how in the world does a group who's identified as the church make any decisions? I mean, who constitutes this church? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, same thing. Clearly, There is within the church a group that can be in the church, and there's also a group that would be out of the church. How do we know who constitutes the church? Again, we've said over the course of this series, it is a people who gather together. It is a people who are baptized and take the the ordinances. But what makes us a local church is not merely the activities that we do, but the commitment that we're making one to another. Formal exclusion from the church presupposes formal inclusion. One author summed it up this way. You can't fire someone who doesn't work for you. You can't vote in your country to remove a government elected official by another country. You can't appeal to a court to discipline someone who isn't within its jurisdiction. And so in the same way, you can't discipline and care for someone who is merely in an informal relationship with you. You have no authority to do so. And so the people in Corinth had voluntarily committed themselves to this formal relationship, and they knew who were in and who were out. Acts 15.22 speaks of the whole church coming together. 1 Corinthians 14 speaks of the whole church coming together. What we looked at last week, 1 Corinthians 11, speaks of the whole church coming together. The question is, who is the church? Just people that give money? No, there seems to be this commitment. And we see this even in the 59 one another's in the New Testament. While there's clearly this universal debt that Christians are to have and to pay to all people, There's a primacy that the New Testament puts on these one another's being obeyed within a local church. And so this doesn't negate our ability and desire to seek the flourishing of the global church, but we are primarily engaged at the local level. And so Church Covenant identifies the particular committed relationships within the church. The church covenant also teaches how I am to live with others. It's the second thing. The church covenant teaches how I am to live with others. A church covenant is a helpful challenge because sometimes in the Christian life, life is hard. Each member of the church now bears responsibility for the lives of other believers. It's an accountability that goes both ways. It's not the kind of responsibility that you have just with someone who's your friend. 
No, it's a covenant that you have entered into before God saying, I will care for you and I will work to encourage you as you walk to glory. And the third thing is the church covenant teaches how others are to live with me. Church covenant isn't merely about challenging ourselves and how we care for one another. It's also a comfort to ourselves and how others will care for us. It's a comfort to know that you'll be cared for and prayed for. And again, that won't happen perfectly, but I believe it will happen faithfully. There's comfort when you join a church and you covenant with other believers. You know that Christians are now committed to helping you when you're down. They're committed to go before God on your behalf, to walk with you, to pray with you, to serve you. You have Christians that are concerned about your spiritual well-being. So much so that if they see you break covenant in your walk with the Lord, they will call you to turn from your sin. For the good of your soul, turn from your sin. And I think it's helpful in thinking about this, just to remind us all, when we think about the challenge that I have to love others and the comfort it is to know I'm going to be loved, we are going to be disappointed because we will not be loved in the way that we think and hope that we would. And it's just a good reminder to say, let's be the type of Christians and church members that we desire others to be to us. It could be argued today that many people don't realize that by joining a church, they're agreeing to be a part of the body. And thus, they're being held accountable by that body. And this is where a church covenant is so helpful because it just clarifies. This is what you are committing to based on God's word. And this is what you can expect based on God's word. If people want a clear explanation as to what's involved, the church membership covenant provides those expectations. They provide clear guidelines for how we will walk together. And so there's not this expectation to live perfectly. No, there's this expectation to live repentantly. Church membership is a commitment to minister and worship in a body of believers where the members are covenanting together to hold each other accountable to pursue Christ as Scripture commands. And the pursuit of obedience is not it's not perfection. It will, mark, it will involve failure and confession on a regular basis. And that's what the mark of a true Christian is. It's not perfection. It's confession and repentance on a regular basis. There are numerous other passages in which the New Testament affirms this important place of formal, committed membership one to another within the life of a local church. And exactly how that membership is to be approached, that's left open to local churches for them to determine for themselves. But it's clear that there is a formal relationship and commitment that does exist member to member, member to leader, leader to member. And all of that is designed for our progress and joy in the Lord. That's the aim. There may be churches that are seeking to, to use membership for control. That's not God's design. It's for your joy and your progress in the faith. And so it's based on these convictions 
that we believe that no matter where God calls you or your family to worship long term, we believe that becoming a committed member will be a catalyst for your continued spiritual maturity. And if we can help you find that, we'd gladly do it. And I think just by, just in an effort to remember what it is that we have covenanted together to do, I want to read and close the sermon with our church covenant. And so members of Covenant Life Church, I would ask that you just listen. Think about the challenge and think about the comfort that you experience because of this. This is in your uh, bulletin. Having been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him and having been baptized by immersion upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another to submit to scripture as the final authority on all issues to affirm and uphold the Covenant Life Church statement of faith, to pursue Jesus through regular Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, and practice of other spiritual disciplines, and to teach our children the same, to walk in holiness in all areas of life as an act of worship to Jesus Christ, repenting quickly of sin and submitting to the accountability of others and discipline of the church in the event of sin, to work together to protect and to promote the mission, worship, ordinances, doctrine, and discipline of the church by attending its gatherings, praying with and for one another, engaging in biblical community, discipling one another, and learning together to increase our knowledge of God and our love for Him, to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to consider their interest in higher regard than our own, to use our spirit-given gifts to serve them and spur them on to love and good deeds and to refrain from anything that could present a stumbling block to them or produce disunity in the body of Christ, to contribute cheerfully and regularly our time, talents, and resources to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations, to pray for and to make the most of opportunities to share the gospel, to live all of life with gospel intentionality, to submit to the biblical leadership of the elders whom God has entrusted to lead the church, and to unite with another faithful church if we leave CLC. They're continuing to carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. To God be the glory. Let's pray. God, as we see the precedent in your word of Christians belonging to one another in unique ways in the local church, I pray that you would move us to obedience. And for those of us who are there, who are members of local churches, I pray that you would remind us of the need we have to joyfully link arms with others for the good of our soul and for the reputation of your great name. And so remind us of the privilege and the responsibility that we have as members one of another. And so in this moment of silence, I pray that you would speak.
speak to us now.